if we're going to lay a sustainable foundation for peace, it's going to be through business and not necessarily through bullets. Welcome to the Greener Grass Podcast from Bluebird Botanicals. I'm your host, Lex Pelger. Today we have our first double episode extravaganza. We're featuring these two interviews because not only do they work well together, but one helped to cause the other. First, we'll be hearing from Kimberly of Rumi Spice about how she went from being a military engineer serving in Afghanistan to a spice trader creating sustainable business models on the most precious of natural commodities. It's a fascinating story, and the reason I got introduced to Kimberly was through our wholesale director here at Bluebird Botanicals, my friend Katie Thompson. Katie met Kimberly at a trade show and said that I must interview her, and she was right, as Katie almost always is. And since I've been trying to get Katie on this show for quite a while, this gave us the perfect reason to finally sit her down in front of the microphone and learn more from her about the bright future at the intersection of cannabis and cuisine. I hope you enjoy these two interviews as much as I did. This show is brought to you by Bluebird Botanicals to spread education about cannabis and other things on the greener side of life. Bluebird CBD oil comes from farms in southern Colorado and is grown using only water, soil, and sunlight. Go to bluebirdbotanicals.com for more info. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be here with Kimberly Jong of, of Rumi Spice. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lex. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so before we get into Rumi Spice, can you talk a little bit about what you were up to before uh, you came to this? I was an engineer army officer or army engineer officer. So I went to West Point, graduated, and was stationed in Germany. And there I was part of an um, engineer unit. So we did both horizontal construction, vertical construction, but also sapper. So blowing up stuff and building roads and generally trying to make roads to places so we could move from A to B. So that's, that's kind of my job. I was a platoon leader. So we were in charge of a hundred, I was in charge of a hundred, I'm sorry, 40 people. <laughs> um, and um, we were deployed to Afghanistan in 2010. Uh, we were there for a year. Um, I did my platoon leader time there for four months. Um, deployed. And then after that, I was a battle captain. And I also did some stints with the provincial reconstruction teams going out to meet with local Afghan women. So all these experiences shaped my idea and my my philosophy about Afghanistan, which is that if we're going to lay a sustainable foundation for peace, it's going to be through business and not necessarily through bullets or, um, or donations or other stuff. I think people need to start businesses if we're going to lay a foundation for peace. What was it like, though, to be doing those kind of, of building projects uh, in Afghanistan at that time and, and leading these big teams? So when you're a platoon leader in the military, usually you're like between 21 to 25 and you're quote unquote in charge of people. Um, but luckily you have you know, non-commissioned officers who are a bit more experienced than you who are, I think, doing a lot of that leading um, and what you're doing is you're learning from them, too. So our unit and our and our platoon was actually doing more of what would sappers be doing, which was route clearance. So we were looking for roadside bombs, IEDs, and either blowing them up or getting rid of them or um, repelling ambushes. 
so we would go into a road before a logistics patrol or infantry patrol or whatever would go through and to try to be almost like a, I wouldn't say a lightning rod, but just trying to get rid of any sort of danger that's on the road um, before the other unit would be able to do their mission to, to make it safe for them. Wow. That is intense work. And, and uh, let me say thank you for your service. Oh, thanks. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, what, what was it like to be going out there being um, with that kind of role? I mean, I think being in the military is, being, is very formative for anybody involved, um, whether you're a lieutenant or a colonel or a private, um, because you're put into a situation where you're, you're not familiar, you're in a place that's very foreign, you don't necessarily speak the language, and you have to get a mission done with very little resources. And the type of situation that a lot of platoons were in is that you're, you're off by yourself, and you're making decisions um, that affect your platoon, and, like, your commander, like, your command commander or your battalion commander is somewhere else, like, in a totally different area. So you learn to be independent. And I would say that that's actually the one of those first few clues that I got that, hey, maybe I could be an entrepreneur. So the military really showed you about that independence and, and how to build a business as well as um, a lot of other things. Yeah, the military does, I think, really teach you how to operate and get a mission done when you don't have very many resources and you have to figure out how to make alliances outside and to you and to leverage resources that might not be yours. And so what was it like to, to be on this engineering side, but then also going out on the social side and doing networking in a place as, as ancient and as involved as the tribes of Afghanistan? One of the first things that we did when we got to our FOB, so FOB Ghazni, uh, that we went to go see the local Afghan National Army base, which was right across the street from ours. And I went over there and I had and I requested to like meet with their commander. And in retrospect, it was kind of funny because I'm this like 22 year old or 20, whatever however old I was, you know, like fresh green lieutenant, like meeting with some probably very veteran and very high up there person in the Afghan National Army. And I don't speak their language, and I'm speaking through an interpreter, and I don't necessarily have an agenda either, right? But <laughs> it was a great experience, to, and it was good. I think it was good on my part somehow, I don't know how, where it came from, to go speak with them because we ended up doing joint missions together. And, I mean, that's, that's what networking is about. Um, it's hard, as you said, because it's, it's a different language and different cultural customs. In other situations, people would not want to talk to me because I was a woman and they were a man and they were not in my family. Um, and so they went to go and meet, they just totally didn't even look at me or talk to me and went straight to my, to my platoon sergeant, for example. And other times, um, I got a, like a marriage proposal in exchange for like goats or something like that. And like that got me endless, like my platoon had endless fun with that. Um, so it was just, it was wild. It was awesome. Wow. Uh, did it feel like you were making some breakthrough, though, in terms of people starting to respect you as a female in the military there and someone that uh, they should be communicating with? I mean, that's not my aim. I'm just trying to get things done. So I don't remember keeping track of that. Um, I mean, I I will say that my overall experience at the end of the day was that we like as a military force, we were there and we did some things and we put ourselves in danger but to what end right like okay we we find an id and we destroy it okay well a new one just takes its place like a couple hours later you know so we're never ever really getting at the root of the problem which is economic opportunity 
was it your work with meeting the women you mentioned earlier that gave you that insight into the where you could find your niche for the economic opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember we went out to meet with these women and we had to ask permission from each husband and father and brother for, for permission for their their women to meet in this one village elder's house. And we went over there and even the village elder came out and said to us, hey, if you have any questions about what these women want and need, I can tell you, which sounds very, obviously very like um, patriarchal according to Western standards. But I think what he was trying to convey was, hey, I take care of these women also. Like, I I have their best interests in mind. Um, and so that's why I know. You know, so anyway, we ended up having a discussion about why these women should elect a local leader for the Women's Shura. And so it was, a, it, it was an idea and an initiative on the PRT's part, so the provincial, provincial reconstruction teams, that's the NATO force, to try to get political representation for these women. But these women who had never, ever had a voice before, um, they were not ready to talk about that. They wanted to talk about health care. They wanted to talk about um, hygiene that they could get for their family and their children and sewing machines that they might be able to to get so they can supplement their family income. So I think you have to start small and you have to be very understanding of where people are starting off or where they're they're at currently um, before we can kind of leap and into things that I think might be a little bit too much. Um, it really shaped my ideas of later on, like, you know, how do we, when you start a business or if you start anything at all, whether it's a military event or a business or something else or a nonprofit, um, what are the situations and the, the factors of the people involved that would make it best for them? Because ultimately they're the beneficiaries. So we can't just impose our own, you know, uh, like ideal ideals and and what we think is right because we don't know so you just have to like listen sit back and listen first listen and watch and so what did the end of your deployment look like and then um moving on to to starting roomy spice so the end of my deployment i think i was a nice battle captain yeah i wasn't doing very much <laughs> um feeling kind of desolate about it because i didn't think that we'd made any difference in afghanistan really I ended up getting out of the military a year later and I went to business school and there they ask you, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? Which is from a poem by Mary Oliver. Amen. And I thought to myself, what, what will I do with my one wild and precious life? And I encourage everyone to ask themselves that because you only have a certain amount of days left to live in your life in the same way that you have a certain amount of meals you have left to eat in your life. That's why I try to eat. Like I, I don't, anyway, we can talk about that later. But anyway, um, so if I wanted to wake up every day and feel good about what I was doing and make an impact and 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 be and be part of something greater than myself, um, I wanted to not. I didn't necessarily want to be an investment banker or a consultant or whatever, which is great. You know that those are great professions, but um, I wanted to do something greater than what I thought I could do, and so I started a business and I started it with a couple of other military veterans um, and, and another friend. Um, and he, so the military, the other guy was Keith and he was deployed at the time. He was in Afghanistan and he knew this farmer named Haji Yosef who was trying to sell saffron to the local NGOs. And obviously they, they don't really buy it, right? They think that they can connect to markets, but nobody's actually doing that. So what the problem is that farmers need to be connected to international markets. They just need to sell their stuff. So um, 
I heard this and Keith and I were like, let's do this. Let's start this business. So I bought myself a ticket to Afghanistan. At this point, I'm a civilian. My parents thought I was crazy. And I took my entrepreneurship professor with me. We met up with Keith in Afghanistan. And we were bargaining with Haji Yosef. I remember that. And he was giving us these like sky high prices, but whatever. Yeah, it's all good. We met up with 11 other farmers on the western side of Afghanistan and Herat. And I remember when the saffron came into the room and you could smell it before you could see it. And it was just this amazing, amazing smell. And you saw it and it was in a cardboard box wrapped in string. So you can see right there and then it's a marketing problem. This is some of the best saffron in the world. And yet it's in a cardboard box wrapped in string. So we brought back some of that saffron to Boston where um, I spent the whole summer in these like tiny farm stands and stores selling saffron. And that's, that's how we started. Wow. So just diving in and making it happen. Yeah, which is so similar to what it was like to be a platoon leader in Afghanistan doing route clearance. And I guess the question is, why saffron? I mean, it's the world's most valuable spice, but that probably also brings some challenges with it as well. Saffron is a crocus, and it blooms once a year. It's in the fall. Fortunately, it does really well in Afghanistan because it doesn't require very much water. It actually prefers arid, uh, arid lands and, and, you know, and winds that don't really have too much moisture in it. Um, so it's a pretty hardy crop, actually. The thing about it is that there's only three stigmas per flower, so they all have to be hand-picked and hand-harvested. So this was great because we actually needed to hire a bunch of Afghan women to do the picking of the flowers. What they were doing before was they were doing it in their home and drawing it on maps and maybe not necessarily living up to developed world standards for food safety. So in our first year of operation, I mean, but maybe that was year two at that point, we started a processing facility and we hired our first uh, batch of Afghan women. I think we're under, under 100 at that point. Um, we, we bought all these drying machines and we rented out the facility. We bought a generator. And then we had our first saffron coming out of our own processing facility. So I'm really proud to say that you know, three years later, we are now the largest private employer of Afghan women. So we hire 1,952. We work with over 300 farmers. And we are 3.6% of the total foreign direct investment in agriculture in Afghanistan. Which is not to say how big we are, but how little foreign direct investment goes into Afghanistan. And we want to change that. Wow. Wow. That's making a big difference for people on the ground, as well as giving you know, a business that gets out a really high quality product to everyone else. It sounds you know, like a classic great business um, thing for everybody involved. Yeah. I'm so proud of where our team has brought us to at this point. We have a team of about seven people in Chicago and also our team in Afghanistan. And everyone is very passionate about what we're doing because we believe in the bigger picture of a better Afghanistan not because we're necessarily the architects of that, but because we're helping to build a brand for Afghanistan and connect Afghan farmers to the international market. Can you tell me more about what saffron is used for and why it is such a, a valuable spice? Saffron is used in bouillabaisse and risotto a la milanaise, and it's in paella. You can't have good paella without good saffron. Um, it's in a lot of Indian desserts. 
So it's good in both sweet and savory. And I will have to admit that it's in a, it, usually you don't find it in your typical restaurant. You find it in your very high-end restaurants, like white tablecloth type restaurants. So, you know, Rumi, we source our saffron to the French Laundry, Danielle, La Bernadon, the Coloring Institute of America. Um, so we're really proud that it is Afghan saffron that is reaching these places. And it's not necessarily because of our social impact. Um, but because it's really high quality saffron. And that's what this is all about. This is a social, sustainable business because the product is really good. And it's not only a, a food. It's also been used as a medicine for a very long time as well. That's right. It was used as um, in ancient Persian culture um, as a poultice um, for different ailments. Um, Cleopatra used to bathe in saffron before her trysts with Julius Caesar because it's very good for your skin. It's got a lot of beta carotene. Um, and Alexander the Great also used to bathe in saffron after battle to heal his wounds. So saffron's always been used in ancient Persian culture as a cure-all. And it has the largest naturally occurring source of crocetin, which is an antioxidant. And so what's it been like as the business grows and networking with people on the ground and seeing the difference that it's making for farmers and the, the women you're working with in Afghanistan? So for the farmers, when I first met them, they didn't shake my hand, not because out of, out of disrespect, but actually out of respect, because I'm a woman from another family. And so you don't shake hands with someone of the opposite sex if you're not part of their family. That's just the general tradition in Afghanistan. So, you know, two years later, not only are these farmers shaking my hand, they're also taking selfies with me because they understand the importance of marketing and because it leads directly into sales. Um, and so, you know, these farmers who on average make $500 per family, per household, per, you know, per year, um, you know, in the first year of operation, Rumi Spice bought two kilograms of saffron at about $2,000 each. So it was about you know, eight times their average annual income. But not just that, you know, we are provide, we are their, like, we're their customers. They grow their saffron according to our standards. You know, that's something that we had to work with a lot, you know, food safety standards and, and, and whatnot. Um, but we're their customers. So if people ask them, oh, are Americans, you know, are they infidels? These farmers will say, no, they're not infidels. They are our customers. And that economic bond leads to social bonds, which leads to economic stability and also, um, in a way, like, more diplomacy than I think ever really happens on, like, the macro level. You need to have micro-level diplomacy, I think, to make long-lasting bonds. And ultimately, we won't have to send soldiers overseas if we had a lot more of these micro-bonds through small business. That's the quote I really liked on your website by Bastiat. When goods do not cross borders, armies will. Absolutely. Wow, this is it's a fascinating idea. US military veterans working with local Afghanis to harvest one of the most exotic spices in the world. It's almost like a fairy tale. I guess so. So before I let you go, um, is there anything else you'd like to say about Rumi um, to let people know? If you're interested in finding out more, you can go to www.rumispice.com and we're named after the Persian poet and philosopher Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, who was born in present-day Afghanistan. So some of his quotes are, Out beyond fields of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down on that grass, the world is too talk about, too full to talk about. Um, the other quote I love 
Sorry, I know you're going to cut some of this out. So no, I am never cutting anything out by Rumi. It's my first Rumi quotes on the whole show, and I am delighted. This is what brought me and my girlfriend together. So. Oh I'm my a- god! Okay, good. I'm so glad that I'm talking to a Rumi um, fanatic. That's <laughs> awesome. Um, so I fell in love with him too, and you know, everything that we do in our business is like I feel like is at the root of the, his philosophy, which is about love and bringing people together and being at the root of who you are but that's more than that right anyway moonlight floods the whole sky from horizon to horizon how much it can fill your room depends on its windows great last one why crawl through life when you were born with wings why crawl through life when you're born with wings thank you so much that's a perfect spot to end um and to say thank you for this work and also to say best of luck in your as you move forward into uh, back to your, your roots in mechanical engineering. Thank you so much, Lex. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you. Okay, take care. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited to have Katie Thompson here today. She came to the library here at Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks so much for coming all the way down the hall. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of the show finally. Woo! And so Katie manages the wholesale department here at Bluebird Botanicals, but we want to talk more about her knowledge of the food industry and where that's going with CBD. But before I get to any of that, I was curious about when did cannabis first pop up in your life and what was the relationship like as you got started? Sure. Um, I think, you know, as a teenager, I got into to smoking marijuana and cannabis at uh, the ripe age of 15, so uh, something I did with my girlfriends at the park, and I kind of never looked back. Um, you know, the first time we smoked, we had that whole rumor that you don't get high the first time, so we made sure to smoke the entire bag. So, so yeah. you got high. Yeah, so it all worked out. And I think I used it on and off in high school, and at some point as a sophomore every day after school, um, I found it as an outlet. Um, I don't think I realized that at the time that I really was using it as an escape, um, getting out of my own head, kind of dealing with some of the stress of family life and nothing severely negative in terms of, you know, my upbringing or anything like that. But I had a sick brother and, you know, that really takes a toll on emotions and such. So um, I think after, you know, I took pause in college and then started it back up and realized how much that helped me emotionally. Um, And then, of course, going through a lot more deeper issue following that using it a lot more heavily you know probably in an unhealthy manner to really escape after he passed away so um and then after you know being a heavy user for personal reasons that way I realized the the therapeutic effects I'm like you know if I can feel this way and actually get that bleeping sound or the PTSD kind of traumatic experience memories that kept coming and making me go crazy if something was working to turn that off imagine you know how that could help with something else um so you know being in the food industry it was you know about you know eight years deep into a food service marketing job and career and taking it to the next level and working heavily with chefs and trying to see how I could pepper it in there and so what was it like to start off in the food industry how did that evolve for you yeah sure so you know I went to college and got a uh, degree in communications so I could get a job anywhere, but then also got a minor in biology because I wanted to potentially, you know, having that upbringing, wanted to join the healthcare force and do, you know, that whole positive part of that when you really only saw lots of the negative parts. So it was really hard 
to really take that on as a career path. Um, so wanting to find a way to help in a, in a certain way, um, you know, people, you know, people got to eat. So I found a way to really find my, my groove in helping people by realizing that if I knew as much as I could about nutrition and food, that maybe even if I was working for a large brand or manufacturer or restaurant or restaurant chain, that I could still maybe have an impact by explaining something as a healthier option or, you know, a replacement for regular flour using a, a dry pea flour for a bigger protein punch that's even almost cheap. You know, so a lot of that kind of um, underlying uh, mission was always part of my food career. When did you realize that you might consider switching to cannabis from the food industry? Yeah, I think, you know, first part of my career was at a, a you know, a, a, an agency that was a little bit more old school. So definitely not an opportunity there. But the second agency that I worked for was a lot more culinary driven. So being on the forefront of chef trends uh, was, you know, it opens your eyes to so many cool things. It's not just food. It's also technology and how foods are, you know, changed or tweaked or let's look at it in a different perspective and do a different method to preparing this thing for the first, you know, so some of that kind of excitement and research for me kind of led me to the idea of, not led me to the idea, of course, because I was noticing the trend popping up that, you know, people were putting THC edibles on their menus or having these, you know, infused dinners that were maybe a pop-up or an underground supper club at first. But that's how these trends start. That's all we learned is that all these food trends start at like this crazy, in, you know, innovation level where somebody tried this for the first time in their kitchen and it worked. And that's just kind of how it, that trend piece of what cannabis could be on the menu just then blew my mind. And it makes a lot of sense as you talk about it because it's not like food has any answer to it. It's it's an art as well as it is a science and cannabis can be the same way. So I guess this segue made a lot of sense for you. Oh, yeah. Like, um, you know, as I was still at this culinary driven agency, I got more into the I was more heavily a, a chef driven sales support. So, you know, finding research for them to then come up with menu ideas was then driving me to well, this is a really healthy food also, you know, it's a complete protein, you know, how, you know, what else could we be doing with something like this, you know, working for even some of these big manufacturers that have had, you know, hemp food items on our grocery shelves for over 10 years since probably 2004. And, you know, leveraging that thought that it's already here, it just has to be involved, evolved, you know, it's been hidden or kept from us and we're still keeping it at a pop-up or underground level when really this should be something we're feeding to, our animals and our uh, our kids in school and we should be teaching it in biology courses and all of our chefs should be learning about this and in the way that we learn about flavor wheels and tasting and pairing you know there's a flavor wheel for wine and beer and coffees and chocolates and there's going to be one that and already are ones for pairing cannabis with food and then also having a flavor wheel for each cannabis strain where you can leverage a terpene profile and really pair it with a certain type of food that really will make it stand out and then your edibles take it to another level and it can be customized to that where you know we're doing an asian fusion night so we take some of these other uh strains that really pop in a ginger flavor profile or even like that sesame soy kind of sweetness we sometimes can can interact with or um you know even on the asian or italian side of the flavor profiles we experience when we ingest cannabis um, the, and then I, you know, then I'm like, what about the terpenes, you know, and the few foods that relate to that, you know, you could take cannabis and cannabinoids out of the entire equation and just talk terpenes 
Or you could also talk cannabinoids from a different resource like hops or flax or, you know, again, it's always finding that other reason how to explain why this is so important or why it's a nutritional impact. And for people out there who are in the food industry who might be nervous about cannabinoids yet, you mentioned about hemp seeds. And one of the things that seems like it's not as well known as it should be is what a ideal mix of essential fatty acids is in hemp seeds. So do you think that could be an entry level for people who want to start experimenting with hemp but are don't want to go as far as cannabinoids or illegally can't where they are? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely an opportunity even like – you know, when you see this health-focused uh, concepts that pop up left and right, you know, like Life Kitchen or, you know, somebody else that might want to Im- improve or have a customization piece of their menu where you're already seeing chia seeds and other additives that are severely healthy. And, you know, you can take an additive like that and put it across your menu. You could add it to a salad or a smoothie or top, uh, you know, you can crisp it up and top a soup so it has a, a texture to it, you know. Again, taking something I know with food and, and developing ideas with how to stretch that format or that usage or, you know, taking a, uh, an item that's back of house and extending it so that they're not buying one ingredient for one dish or buying one ingredient that could be used as a soup base and one as a, as a you know, a flour replacement or uh, a protein additive so that it can bump and make sure that something is a little bit more healthy than we could, you know, because our chefs are kind of that health aspect as well because our doctors don't know how to cook. They don't know how to tell us about what we should be eating healthfully and be preventative. So our chefs are taking it maybe to an artistic extreme level, and maybe there's some refining that, you know, it's kind of the spectrum of where we could be using food as medicine. Food as medicine, that was also why an easy transition from what I used to do made it so easy for me to think that hemp is obviously a food and it's obviously a medicine as well. And you've been interviewed about the the trends that you see coming. What do you think some of the most exciting stuff that coming down the pipeline with cannabis for people who are primarily focused on food? I think what I see with hemp foods and and the customization piece or um, where this kind of really does translate into that menu trend idea would be um, kind of individualized health and that approach where, you know, even here at Bluebird, we already take on that idea that everyone's different. We already know that. You know, we heavily talk about it on the phone and when we're selling because there's no one size fits all. So there's a, an absolute opportunity to, you know, utilize hemp in a dietary program. It could be for specialty diets. You don't only just have to eat it for health. You could be eating it for, you know, somebody who's gluten-free could be using a, a hemp flour. Uh, somebody who's got uh, soy, wheat, whey, you know, all this, the top seven allergens Hemp's not necessarily on that list. So you have a, a you know a non-dairy beverage that you can serve at a coffee shop that instead of almonds, uh, soy, or coconut, you have a hemp, which is, again, maybe a little bit better in protein, um, and then it's not allergen. So you you know might have to do some barista development and find out how it froths, but that's really not hard, and there's ways to really use that art form and make it work. So... Um, and I think that individualized approach to health, like we are starting to pay more attention to how, how we are individuals and that, you know, maybe, you know, certain types of genes or um, other backgrounds of our genetics might influence what we should be eating every day versus what we see and choose to eat every day. So cannabis fits in that 100% because, you know, not only can we use it as a food with no cannabinoid content, but then you bring in cannabinoids as a specialized piece that is very individualized and you add that as a food component as well that just like we're ingesting certain grams of protein and 
and magnesium and all these other elements that should be specialized to our individual bodies, add cannabinoids to that because we're servicing a system. So maybe a certain body type should require more CBG, CBNs, and CBCs of the world, or a different ratio of THC to CBD, or you know, a different set of terpenes when you're ingesting because they're it lock and key kind of approach might really mix up certain things. You know, there's a way to utilize what we are as individuals to these programs, and that's what's happening in food also currently right now. I guess as you talk about it, there might be a fear that this is so complicated that a chef might want to not deal with it. What advice would you have for someone who might be fearful this is just too much to try to implement into a kitchen? I would approach them like I would in a client in my old days where that would maybe not want to bring on or adopt a new menu item because of that idea that we don't mind servicing the gray hair, you know, people who will want to be there at six, get their soup and leave because that's the menu we've always had. You know, it's that kind of idea where that's fine, but that demographic changes over time. And that demographic is also bringing in their, their nieces and their nephews and their grandchildren and their families. And that some of those family members are going to be changing in terms of their mindset. So, kind of that idea where if you don't pay attention as a culinarian, you know, you're doing a disservice to your craft because because it is a food and because you are actually having an impact on people's health um, with this item that it, it's, you know, as somebody who who is a chef that to me you are you're doing this trade that a lot of us don't get into and you are feeding the world, your food is your medicine and if you don't feel like that about what you are doing in the kitchen, you're in the wrong field in a way. So it's kind of like shame on you for not understanding something that has such a huge impact on our nutrition. And it's, you know, it goes right to the dietitians and well, it's tr- trickle it down. It's not, it's beyond chefs and culinarians in that way. It's the dietitians and the, the, you know, the lunch ladies and the people who are developing menu items and menu plans for people who are obese or have diabetes or need to only eat certain items because of their specialty diet, diet needs. You know, those people need to know this just as much. And you have a chance to talk to an important crowd coming up. Can you tell us about your next speaking engagement and where people can find you and a little bit about what you might talk about there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm severely excited because, you know, leveraging my, my background and, you know, wanting to be on the forefront of trends, I kept in touch with, you know, a lot of my friends and, and people in the, in the food industry and one of them being Data Central out of Chicago. Um, they are a research database group that is really, uh, you know, the amount of work that their database can do for a menu or a uh, an ingredient or a demographic or a, so the, the nitty-gritty that they can pull out in terms of what you should know uh, is insane. And I used to love leveraging their tool left and right because they do such great work. Um, and, you know, I was featured in a um, 420 promotional uh, research report that they sent out in April. And it was one of those things where they're starting to realize that this is a trend. Um, You know, seeing this at trade shows already five years ago, that marijuana on the menu at the National Restaurant Association show in Chicago was already happening. So this isn't new, but it's scary. So it it takes time. But, you know, having that article come out in April and really seeing the impact and um, really having kept in touch and just saying, where else can I can I help? You know, I need to help tell this story because even in something like that, that report was still pretty heavily m- marijuana focused, and that's the shame. I think also it's a it's a something people are gravitating towards, but there's so much more, and that's the hemp plant and what else what else is there. So 
that's what I want to keep influencing in these talks. And as as I get invited to speak, um, the next one coming up is in September, uh, September 19th and 20th, I believe, in Chicago again. Um, it's called Foodscape 2, and it's this is their their this is their um, you know f- be on the forefront of what is next in food. Um, and a lot of it does speak to customization, you know, menus that are developed for individual body types, um, all the, all the technology that comes with what's coming up in the future, and how we can use our twenty three and Me results and really make a menu or decide which cannabinoids to eat. So um, I feel like I might be able to stand out pretty heavily there because. You know, food is food, but if people are, you know, when chefs find out something new, watch out, you know, because they want to be the guys or the gals that have it on their menu first or the one that took it and did something completely different with it first. So they don't like to sit back and wait for someone else to do it because they want to be the ones to to be the one. So, uh, you know, I get to interact with large um, manufacturers, a lot of other uh, groups and, and individuals from huge brands. So those are the types of people coming like uh, to this foodscape and you know I really have a chance to have some top players in the room and really let them know uh, that if you haven't you really need to and on a more personal note as a chef what are some of your favorite recipes that you like to share to people about using cannabis or uh whether in the marijuana form or the hemp form yeah I mean I think to me that's more or less something I would like to have more time to mess around with and something that I like to kind of play both sides where I I can see where it might fit and I haven't played with it yet. Like, you know, something like curries, can of curries would be amazing because you're, you're, you're already working with other botanicals and spices and such to potentially utilize, you know, I want to go the terpenes and food kind of profile and like use basil and mango somehow and the walnuts and the black peppercorns of the world to, to kind of tell that terpene story in that food space you know, so if I were a chef, I'd do something like that. Or if I were really a chef, I might do something like a, an Alice in Wonderland themed kind of um, menu where I might take a terpene and pair it with something. Or I might take, you know, Beyond THC and CBD and really do that kind of, you know, eat this and feel this and, and try this treat and feel that. Or, um, you know, kind of really expanding that experience beyond feeling a psychotropic high from THC or a, a nice chill feeling from maybe CBD, but where could we fit CBG into the menu where maybe a CBG is on our, you know, as the story goes, it's, you know, our parent cannabinoid. So maybe it's the beginning of our, our experience and it really gets you kind of jazzed up because it has that ability to maybe bring you up a little bit before we get into everything. So I'd probably, if I had the opportunity to do that, I would do it like that where I would take it beyond what it is currently and tell that seed to sale story from or seed to menu story or rather like you know maybe there'd be a soil component to that story and then you know the the cannabinoids the terpenes the other healthy components that have no cannabinoids as well featuring the seeds and the oils and the other ingredients that people aren't using like a, a protein or, or hemp powders that could be used as a flour so I'd take that flour and, and do something traditional with it maybe like a hemp fried chicken or something crazy so um, you know, I would want to go that route with it. Hemp fried chicken. <laughs> well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> At least I've heard it here first. Um, and so one last question before I let you go. What's the most exciting uh, aspects of food and cannabis that you see coming up that really get you jazzed? I really think it is the health piece and the fact that we can pull out all these healthy components of what it already does and is. 
and really, again, tell a, a stronger health story in so many regards. You know, we're not kale or quinoa. You know, we're going to be around for a long time, and it's going to be a staple piece of our diet. And then, you know, even those kind of trends um, that may or may come in and out. I'm not saying kale and quinoa are going away, but, you know, hemp trickles all the way down to improving our soil and being an ag f- feed for our, 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 you know, animals and, and invigorating our agricultural groups because they have something brand new to learn how to grow and it Im- does improve their lands and their soil. So um, I think the, you know, the overarching kind of health trend going beyond that plate, you know, and that's, again, what we want to do as, a, as anyone bringing something to this world is we don't want to have an impact that's negative in the production side of it just so it tastes good. You know, we want something that also does improve our soils and can, um, you know, be a complete protein, even though it's a vegetarian profile. You know, that's hard to do with anything currently. It's close, but it's not as great as hemp or, you know, even hemp is the, the grams of protein that's in there. You know, it's pretty strong and it, it, it goes head to head with red meat. And that's, you know, a common misconception about being a vegetarian that you can't get as good of protein. You know, so all these kind of stories that we're going to be changing the world in that regard. And I don't want to sound too out there with that idea, but it really is that, you know, if there's something currently doing something great, hemp can do it better. Sustainable food. Mm-hmm. Katie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun and I really am so Happy to be part of the Greener Grass podcast. Greener Grass is a Bluebird Botanicals podcast. Their CBD oil supports a healthy body and a strong endocannabinoid system. They've got friendly customer service who can answer any of your questions, and the number is right there at the top of their webpage. But, per the FDA, they won't be able to make any medical claims for these nutritional supplements. That's also the reason you'll hear little about CBD on this show. There's no need for us to add more evidence about CBD when a simple Google search will give you more than you can read in a month of Sundays. So this show covers the cannabis world and more with editorial freedom from Bluebird Botanicals. Thanks for joining the Greener Grass podcast. As always, our audio alchemist is Matt Payne. The Gypsy Jazz theme music comes from Brett Van Donsel. Our beautiful bird sounds are courtesy of Lang Elliott, and I'm your host, Lex Pelger, wishing you a bright green day.